You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in the book of Revelation, commonly known as the Apocalypse, more correctly stated as the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the book that reveals how the king will take back his kingdom. It is a remarkable book of prophecy. John has seen this amazing vision, the heavenly throne, surrounded by these living creatures, the 24 elders. We've seen the sealed scroll in the hand of the Ancient of Days, and we saw the slain lamb take that scroll. The lamb stood to his feet, he took the scroll, and remember, we've seen him already break the first seal. There are seven seals on this scroll, and we argued that this scroll was in fact the title deed to the earth. The ancient Israelite landlords required that a redeemer, a relative, and a title deed like this, a contract, would be required to take back property that had been given to someone else. In a cosmic sense, this is what has happened to the earth. It has been usurped by Satan, basically, and people who follow him. And this is the final period of history where God has decided it is time for me to come back and take it. And the opening of these seals is one of the ways that this starts to happen. Last week we looked at, in popular culture, they're known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse because of the imagery of this book that uses symbolic horses to describe the coming of various different events. We saw this white horse coming and we talked that this is representative of the appearance on the earth of a man that is popularly called, again, in culture, known as the Antichrist. Again, I I described I don't particularly like that term because of what Hollywood has done to it, but what it literally means is the false messiah, one who stands in place of the true messiah, Jesus, and one who stands against everything that he stands for. He's called the son of destruction in the Bible. He's called the man of lawlessness, and he will not be a figure that people look at and be, oh, he's, he's evil. He will be a figure, a world leader, skilled in politics, skilled in rhetoric. He will offer the world a false peace, and he will masquerade as a political saviour of mankind, and mankind will follow him. And we've seen examples of that in history. However, remember, we looked in the book of Daniel, and we saw that the spirit operating behind this individual is Satan the spirit of Antichrist, John called it. And we read these passages that said some of the characteristics of this spirit are, it says in Daniel 8, that he will oppose the Prince of Peace, as in, that is, he will stand against Jesus Christ. In Daniel 11, it says he will speak monstrous things against the Most High God. This is someone who will stand against all that Christ stands for. He'll stand against God's people, and most importantly, he will stand against God's word and everything it proclaims. And you don't have to search too far in this world to see that spirit is alive and well. However, remember, in this period of history, it is different to the age we are living in now. This is a period of history where the restraint is gone. Do you remember we talked about the restrainer of the Holy Spirit through the church on earth has been removed at this time. Evil is about to make its last stand on the earth. If you want to think about this, the squatters are being evicted, but yet they are still putting up a fight. That is basically what we're dealing with in the book of Revelation. And as we read from the Apostle John in his epistles, although he agrees that there is a final Antichrist coming, this figure, this world leader, he says the spirit is alive and well today, and we've seen historical examples. We'll touch on a lot of those again today. Now, I'll be frank with you, these next few verses that we're studying are hard verses to preach on. It's dealing with war and it's dealing with famine, and these are subjects that our world has a lot of experience in. But what I want us to understand is why 
I want us to have, remember the whole context of the book of Revelation, that this is happening because when we rebelled against God, when we pushed him out of this world, when we live our lives without thought to God, we hand it over to Satan. And he is the one who has usurped this earth. And since that day, every day since Christ's resurrection, since Christ defeated the power of death, he has been calling people out through the proclamation of the gospel to rescue them from the domain of darkness and bring them in and make them sons of the kingdom. Because one day he knew that he would be coming back and he would set up his kingdom on this earth. That is what we're reading about in the book of Revelation. That is the context that you have to have. And unfortunately, as we look at some of these issues, it's hard to deal with. These are, these are judgments, but often these are just the full manifestation of men doing evil things to men because they are separated and lost from God. We see it in history, but what we're looking at in Revelation is a time unknown to history, but we can still give some good examples. So I, I want you to be able to identify the streams that are happening in the world today. And you can see them. They are there unmistakably, and hopefully that's what we can do today. So let's look at Revelation verse 6. I'll read the couple of verses we did last week for context. It says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. We dealt with these verses last week. We said that that was the appearance this man who comes with a bow, a covenant, a treaty of peace, and he went out and takes dominion over the earth. This is this coming world leader, this, this person who will appear on the earth at this time. Verse 3, when he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So here we see the second horseman, the red horse, and he follows on from the white horse. Now, one thing you must remember about these horses is that there is a sort of sequential consequence to them, as in the red horse and the black horse and, and the ashen horse that will come after are all consequences of the first horse appearing, as in they all follow on from the appearance of this coming world leader. And as we should, we're going to study this his, history and study prophecy now, hopefully you'll see that happening. With the arrival of this red horse, peace is taken from the earth. Now, not that you could really say we have much peace in many places, but what this is basically saying is that war will break out on the earth at this time. However, before we jump into this period, to contextualize it for us, which is very important, I want us to connect it back to the first seal, but I also want us to connect it back to this pursuit of peace that mankind has. And whilst you may think, no, mankind's fallen, it's not a real peace, that's absolutely the point. It is a confused notion of peace, one that is often seen through broken humanity, fallen nature, and misunderstands the true meaning of peace. I want to try and establish both of those things in our minds today. Now, many people will argue in the world today, peace is simply the absence of war. That's one way that it's often described. And in our world, that is kind of true in many ways. World peace is given as this sort of utopian vision that everyone has to aspire to. You may know it's in, you know, if you've ever watched any movies, it's a stereotypical answer. Whenever you see a beauty pageant in a movie, what do you want for the world or what's the best thing that our society needs? And they all have to answer world peace or else the judges don't, great, don't watch them. I have no idea what this movie is, but I'm sure some of you do. You remember that famous answer? What's the most important thing society needs? Harsher, harsher punishments for parole violators and world peace. And that's what she said there. That's a funny movie, but we can make fun of it, 
But the actual pursuit of peace in this sense, world peace, is something that is always pursued by man and yet it always eludes man. And history proves this, and I'm going to go through some history with you today. What we could really describe as peace in our world, the way we understand it, is a brief interruption between different wars. That's just it. That is basically what we have. The the famed historian William Durant, he wrote a very famous book called The Lessons of History. He said that in three and a half thousand years of recorded history, there's only 268 where there's no wars. So the vast majority of mankind's history has been war or bloodshed. We understand this because this is what happens when you reject the Lord. This is where we're rebelling from him and bloodshed comes. Do you remember right back in the early days, Cain and Abel, the first murder? This is how these things happened. And the world really follows in that pattern. President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, during World War I, when America entered that war, he made a very famous speech where he said, this will be the war to end all wars. Very famous phrase, except, of course, after 9 million dead, 21 million wounded in that conflict, World War II followed very shortly from that, and so have many other wars in the 20th century. Even now, as I speak, there are very serious rumours of war happening, yet we are maybe not hearing as much about them as we should, because we are very much concentrated on who was attending parties and doing all this sort of thing. Russia is on the verge of invading Ukraine. If you don't know that, there are currently 100,000 Russian troops amassed on the Ukrainian border. And if you know anything about Putin, he has always wanted to bring Ukraine back under the the banner of the, like it was in the Soviet era, the USSR, and and the US and NATO are in talks trying to prevent that right now. That is one rumor of war that is happening as we speak. Another major conflict zone, of course, is Israel and Iran. Iran, through the use of its proxies in Lebanon, Hezbollah, is pushing for war, is pushing its nuclear, con- nuclear program, and Israel, of course, has said that they will not allow that to happen, so who knows, again, what is going to happen there, that's another area. And, of course, we've seen China flexing their muscles a lot recently, taking back independence from Hong Kong in many ways, but the biggest conflict that's growing now is, again, the issue of Taiwan. Again, they want Taiwan back under their control rather than being an independent nation that happened after World War II. Now, many people say that's because it used to be theirs and they want it back. Uh, China's president has said that the reunification of Taiwan must be fulfilled, and he's not ruled out force to do it. However, a lot of economists are saying that there's another motivation for that. If you don't know, Taiwan dominates the global production of computer chips. Pretty much every bit of Western technology that we have will have a chip made from Taiwan. It's a $730 billion industry in 2021. And of course, that will be a motivation for anyone who controls Taiwan to be control of that industry there. So that is a motivation. And this is always the same things on this planet, isn't it? You see the world turning, money, power, empire. These are the things that man has always sought without God. It seems peace is unreachable. Yet still it's held up as the ideal, and that's almost like a contradiction. Now please don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that we should not desire peace. It's obvious that peace is a much better state of affairs than war. The Bible says we are called to be peacemakers. But what I want to try and highlight here is when we say that, quoting the words of Jesus, within a Christian worldview, a framework, understanding it from the Bible, we mean so much more than just the absence of war. The ultimate vision of peace and God's kingdom, as he talks about it, is much more than just people not fighting against each other. We'll unwrap this as we go through this book more. We'll get to that. However, 
I do think that people have, mankind in general, has this vague sort of notion that peace is the desired state of affairs because ultimately all of mankind is made in the image of God. And therefore we have certain desires, certain, certain moral consciousness put within us that understands these things, yet we're fallen, we're broken, and sin and the flesh get in the way and confuse these things. But these are some of the issues that we're going to look at this morning. Mankind's desire for peace has led to a number of different world peace theories. If you've never heard any of these, you would have seen them at work in the world. We desire peace, we just don't always seem to know how to accomplish it. And hopefully, when we're finished with this book, you'll understand. One of the most common theories is called the peace through strength theory. You'll see this in the imperial forms back in the Roman Empire when Jesus was around. They called it the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Because of the strength of Rome, no one dared challenge Rome in certain areas and they had a relative peace amongst their empire. They call it the Pax Britannia. In more modern times, this was when the British Empire was in control of a very large empire. That's the imperial forms and then there's also the republic form which is pretty much the dominant model for the Western nations today, the US and their allies. It was particularly the model used during the Cold War era. This is why you had the arms race. The one who got the nuclear weapons first would be the stronger one, and therefore that would prevent the other one attacking, and ultimately that would bring peace. And that actually has been a big deterrent for many wars in this world. Uh, and thankfully, many of the largest and strongest have been those that are also rated the highest on the World Freedom Index. There is a connection between these issues. However, when you stand back and look at it, you'll still see that these models basically anticipate war pretty soon at some point. So like I said, peace is just this interruption between war. But that's the peace through strength theory. The second really major dominant model in the world today is peace through revolution. And this is what we call Marxism. Started by Karl Marx. I'll try and sum this up for you briefly. In Marx's view of history, under capitalism, the world is divided into two different classes. Quite simply, those who work and those who own things. And these two are forever at odds with one another. I'm simplifying this, but this is just so you can try and understand this. And via revolution, the ruling class and all its private property that they get people to work, on the, uh, work with will disappear, as when Marx put it, when the workers of the world unite and rule. And the way to begin this revolution is through socialism, and that is an economic theory. Today we call it the redistribution of wealth, many different names, but it's ultimately the same thing. That is how you get to this revolution, and ultimately when the workers of the world unite, they will throw off their owners, and everything will be lovely. That's the idea. The utopian fantasy is that if you can remove the tension between these two groups of people, and the way you do that is to remove all private property and to remove all these issues, and then the state will no longer be needed when that is done and it will just disappear. And you'll have unions of different people working in peace and harmony. Basically what this view is saying is that if the right external surroundings are achieved, then men will be good and they won't be violent. And in this state of communist utopia, people will no longer be required to live for survival, but they will live for peace. That's a brief overview, again, very simplified, again, I'm, I'm aware of that, but I would say, quite frankly, this is one of the biggest lies the devil ever pulled. It's never worked, it's never been seen to work, because it turns out, when these people or governments get all of this property that they take from people, they are really not too keen to give it up and just disappear. 
again because of the fallen nature of man. In fact, Marxism has been one of the bloodiest ideologies on the planet, and still is, I would probably say. We looked at some of it last week. One of the core principles of this movement is that it is atheistic, as in one of its foundation stones is that there is no God. That is one of the points. And remember, this is what I'm trying to highlight to you. The spirit of Antichrist that we're warned about from John is ultimately a spirit that stands against God. Remember, he will oppose the Prince of the Most High. He will speak blasphemous things against the God of gods. This is exactly what you see here with this theory. A theory that impacts our world today. This is not just a theology study we're doing here in a book, in a church. This is something that impacts all of our world millions of times over. These theories are real, and this is the spirit that is operating in many of these places. They are the two major world peace theories, peace through strength. Usually that is adopted by nations that have more of a freedom inclination, Judeo-Christian values, and then you have the atheistic on the communist side, and then there are many other different ones. Religion is actually a, a one way that you do this. Many religions advocate a world peace theory. If you didn't know the Baha'i faith, if you've ever heard of them, their whole concept is that there will be a world, is to bring about world peace through the lesser and greater ways. Eastern religions teach that the path to world peace is actually to first find out that peace comes from within. And that's what many of these meditation techniques and yoga and all these different things are related in some way to finding this inner peace. And thus, when you find that, you can then eventually, if enough people find that, it'll, it'll impact the world. And again, obviously Christianity is separate and does not believe in those issues. There's something different for us, but I'm trying to emphasize to you just how much the world is engaged with this issue so that as we move into Revelation, we can just see exactly what is happening. The United Nations, they actually have a holiday, an international holiday, 21st of September, called International Peace Day, or the International Day of Peace, and it's observed by all UN member states. On this day, the peace bell which is in the United Nations headquarters in New York, it will be rung. And this is a Japanese Buddhist peace bell. It was donated to the UN by Japan. It's built from donated coins that have been collected from children across the entire United Nations member states. And of course, the gold there was donated by the Pope. And you have that there. And the inscription reads, long live absolute peace on the side. Long live absolute peace. In addition, at the UN building in New York, you'll also find the Isaiah Wall. I've talked about this before with you. It's a very famous spot for protesters and for people to stand making their point. It quotes a verse from the Bible, and it says this, And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Now go with me here. I'm trying to explain to you mankind's desire for peace and all the different ways that they try and get there. This is, we'll come back to this in a moment. There's also a very lovely statue that represents this that was donated. This is outside on the grass in front of the United Nations building. This was donated by Russia. And that is a man hammering a sword into a plowshare based on that verse. Very recently, the UN also caused a big stir when it displayed a statue like this. And this statue is called, the name of this statue is the International Guardian for Peace and Security. And it was a gift from Mexico. Uh, it's now been removed. It was only a temporary display. It, it, the, the Mexican government describe it as it was a cross between like an eagle and a jaguar, which were both things common in, in the heritage there. Of course, obviously, a lot of people made fun of it because it looked very much like 
the beast described in the book of Revelation. So whether they removed it because of that, we don't know, but this is the sort of thing. But the International Guardian for Peace and Security. Now let's go back to that Isaiah wall, the Isaiah verse. I want to tie this all back together and hopefully you'll see why I'm building this point to you before we get back into our Revelation text. The verse that they had on the wall there is not a full verse. You might notice, let me go back to it for you, it starts there, they will be. In fact, it's a quotation of half a Bible verse. They start right in the middle of the Bible verse and I want you to go back to the book of Isaiah with me now, Isaiah chapter 2, and I want us to look at that verse in context and here you will see exactly how the world operates. Isaiah chapter 2. I'll read it from verse 1, and we'll get to verse 4, and then I'll I'll make some points. Their quote is from verse 4. But verse 1, which is the context, it says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between nations, and he will render many decisions for many peoples. And this is what they quote. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. But look at the beginning of the verse. He will judge between nations, and he will render decisions. The reason they are able to make their swords into plowshares is because he, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who is called Prince of Peace in the Bible, is ruling the earth at that point. You see, all these human visions of peace are utterly humanistic. What I mean by that is they take out reference to God at every single stage, and instead of God, they replace God with mankind. Mankind is its own saviour, and that is how they seek to usher in this age of peace, totally oblivious to the true state of humanity, which is fallen and separated from God, and in desperate need of forgiveness and redemption to be reconciled with their creator. Let me ask you this, where else in the Bible, who else in the Bible, let me say it like that, do we see used scripture in such a way? A way that seeks to get to the ultimate end, which is good, a state of no war and peace, but doing it by bypassing Jesus Christ and everything he said, did and taught. We saw Satan offer this to Jesus right after he was baptised. He went to the wilderness and during that temptation, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, all of these kingdoms will be yours if only basically you don't go to the cross if you bow down and worship me. He tried to get that end and Jesus, of course, says, it is written, quotes scripture at him and it is done in that respect. But this is, I see, this is exactly the same sort of thing here. A misquotation of a verse out of context, specifically denying the fact that this is talking about Jesus Christ ruling and instead of Jesus Christ, it replaces Jesus Christ with the United Nations, ultimately a representative of all of mankind. That is what is going on here. They replace it with man and they take the Messiah away. In the context of Revelation then, It is not surprising when the ultimate man, this man of sin, this man of lawlessness, this amazing world leader who comes on the scene, he comes on the scene and it says, you've probably heard this in popular culture, he comes with the number 666. And of course many people make up these codes and try and figure it out. Six in the Bible is the number of man. Uh, In the Jewish way of interpreting they have different representations for different numbers. Seven is, is divine or completeness. Six is the number of man. 
this is the ultimate man. This is a full representation of humanism in all its forms. This spirit of Antichrist that is operating now, once the restrainer is removed, it has full freedom to, to manifest itself in its ultimate way. And this is it, this man, this one man, this false messiah. And you can see just how easily all these nations will be deceived. A man will arrive on the scene, and he actually utilizes this Antichrist, this world leader. He uses all of those world peace theories that I went through. Yes, he will have imperial control, and he will do it by force if necessary. But he will also use peace to get that control. He will have economic control. He will be in control of who buys and who sells. This is very typical of socialism and the control that we see in a minor form in those other nations around the world in history and today. And we also know that this man will use religion too. He will be a very good speaker. He will have religious components and he will control people through that too. And of course, people will follow this person. Just a very brief look at this survey, I've only mentioned a few things here, has shown us that the world is already enamoured with this idea. People flock to the United Nations building. Every government, that Russia's donating statues, Japan's donating statues, Mexico's donating things, all with this concept of peace in mind. It will not take much for the world to take that final step when this world leader comes. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul warned us. 1 Thessalonians 5.3, he said, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with a child and they shall not escape. When everyone is saying peace and safety, when someone comes along who is able to, in many superficial ways, achieve that peace and safety, people will look at him, what a wonderful person, what a savior. He's fixing all the world's problems and then all of a sudden, that was the white horse, then the red horse comes, peace collapses and we have a state of war. This is what the red horse is fulfilling. Exactly as we've seen laid out for us in history in minor ways, we will now see in the ultimate fulfillment. Man has pursued peace through a false construct, assuming we achieve it on our own, by our own efforts, assuming we know the way to peace, and this is the big mistake. Actually, we misunderstand the whole concept of peace in the first place. In Isaiah chapter 59, verse 8, God laments over the people of Israel. He says, they do not know the way of peace. There is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked and whoever treads on them does not know peace. They were following after their own way, making alliances with these different nations that the Lord had told them not to do. And ultimately, the peace always crumbled and they always ended up in a war. That is basically how history has played out. Now, who does know the way of peace? The United Nations or the Prince of Peace. In Luke chapter 2, verse 4, we, do you remember what the angels sung to the shepherds at the birth of Christ? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men and whom, with whom he is pleased. This is the true concept of peace. We must understand it biblically before any secular notion of peace comes in our head. The word is going back to the Hebrew concept of peace. If you've ever heard anyone speak Hebrew, you've heard the word shalom. You use it for hello, you use it for goodbye. That comes from a root word, shalom, which basically means, or well, has a, a lot of meaning, it means to make full restitution, to restore. It's much more than just an absence of conflict between people. It's speaking to actually someone's uh, wholeness, their well-being, their completeness in mind, body, and estate. And it is, is including a spiritual component to mankind. It is a statement about being complete, 
being in full restored relationship with your creator, which is the very reason that mankind was created and we were made in his image. We were separated from him by sin. The gospel is the means back to our creator to fulfill our purpose. That is what really Shalom is getting at. And God made a plan for this world whereby he would accomplish that and offer that way to everyone, but it was not going to be through a a group of nations getting together and coming up with treaties. The way he was going to do it is what Christmas was all about. It's through that baby in a manger, which is why the angels sung, this is how peace on earth will come. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and then we have that wonderful title, the Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now notice, thrones, kingdoms. These are things that are speaking about Jesus, but also speaking about concepts we understand on this world. Thrones, kingdoms, domains. And they are saying the true kingdom of peace, the one that is quoted on the United Nations wall, will come when this son of David is sitting on that throne. This will be the true peace, not the false peace. But before we get to that peace, firstly, all the people in this world have to find the right way to peace. So firstly, this is why before he comes back to set up his kingdom, the gospel goes out to the earth. Man and God need to be reconciled. This is what the gospel is all about. This is why the Lord of peace can grant peace. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. 16, sorry. Now may the Lord of peace, that's a title of God, the Lord of peace, continually grant you peace in every circumstance. When the world pushes in, when the world gets tough, when we are more than aware that we are living in a broken world, whether it be through the news, personal pain, stuff that has happened to you in your life, God, the Lord of peace, will grant you peace in circumstances, but he will do it not through making your circumstances really nice, not through anything else. He will do it by introducing you to the Prince of Peace. That is it. That is really what life is all about in many ways. But let's look again at this red horse. It says, and another horse went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So this world leader, this Antichrist, arrives on the scene under the pretense of peace, and very soon that evaporates, war breaks out. He brings war and death, and notice it says that men would slay one another. And this, again, is how war goes, obviously. Among those who are committed to their own utopian vision, We see this, like I've talked about the Marxist vision and various different visions that people have of their way they will bring about peace. In this time period, this is this one all-powerful world ruler who controls economies and nations and militaries, but he doesn't have it all to himself. There are other nations that do seem to rise up against him, not because they're necessarily on a different side, but because they want their vision to be the one that is mandated for all of humanity rather than his. And it does say that he will have to fight them as in, this is how it goes in war. You get rid of your opposition, don't you? This, I believe, is what we see happening through the book of Revelation, which is what the red horse is representing. As one particular government is trying to mandate for people that are not previously under their domain, often people will fight back. We see that in history. This is what's going to happen in this period here, to a degree that we previously don't know. In the book of Daniel, that tells us a lot about the career of this man, tells us a lot about the history of world empires, prophetically, amazingly, but it also tells us a lot about this future man. It says in this, Daniel 7, verse 24 to 26, 
as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. Now, I'm not going to go through all the horns and kings. This is basically speaking about a worldwide government that happens at the end. We'll study Daniel one day. Another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones. This is speaking of this coming world leader. And it says he will subdue three of these other kings. He will speak out against the Most High, wear down the saints of the highest, and will make alterations in times and in law, and they'll be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years of the 70th week. But the court will sit in judgment, and his dominion will be taken away. We've read all this previously. So this is basically saying that when this man tries to take over and put, set up his global government, at first there will be a little bit of resistance from various nations. They will be subdued by him and he will have free reign but then it also reminds us when the time comes and we see the true king coming this man is dealt with like that there's no battle this is not a counterpart to Jesus Christ this is falsehood and this is that will be removed immediately and then we'll be in the true kingdom age but before that these birth pangs this period of time, this final age of history is going to be characterised by deception, confusion, war and bloodshed, like a time we do not know. Let's move, let's do the next horse quickly too, just two verses. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come, I looked and behold a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the centre of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now remember there is a connection between all these horses I said. The arrival of this world leader, peace treaties, governments, then subduing people by war and what always follows war. History proves this or in fact not always, it's a consequence of war in many cases but actually often a weapon of war is famine. This has, been, this has been done many, many times. I want to show you a few of these now so you can just see how realistic the Word of God is in these areas. 1933, they called it the Holodomor. That's a Ukrainian, two Ukrainian words that basically means hunger extermination. And this is referring to the Soviet famine under the Stalin era of Soviets. Era. Well, now, it's very interesting to understand what caused this famine. It was a massive famine, huge amounts of people died, but it was famine being used as a weapon. Basically, again, I'll try, try and keep this short. Stalin made the decision, the, the leader of the USSR, he made the decision to collectivize agriculture. So basically what that means, it's again, in the theory of Marx and these sorts of things that we've looked at, he would have teams of communist agitators who would basically force farmers and landowners, uh, they called them peasants, to give up their personal property, their farmland, to the state. The state would now be in charge of it. And this was the idea. So private property bad, state-owed control good, with the concept that the state can then equitably distribute everything fairly. We hear that being said a lot today, don't we? That's, <laughs> we've been taught that private property is bad, state-nationalised things are better. These are derivatives of the same sorts of things going on, the same spirit behind a lot of this. However, what this actually did in reality, it led to a drop in production, it led to the disorganisation of the rural economy, it led to food shortages, and it also led to uprisings as people were not too happy about having their private property taken away. Farms and villages, Stalin came down hard on these uprisings. He put entire villages and towns on blacklists and they were pre prevented from receiving any food whatsoever. 
and many of the peasants were forbidden to leave the Ukrainian Republic to search for food at any time. Now, the result of this was catastrophe. In spring of 1933, well, between 31 and 34, at least 5 million people perished through hunger alone on these issues. This is famine. This is the black horse. This is often a way that people are controlled during times of war. Now, what's interesting to note also is that the media at this time, again, always involved. Those who spoke out against it were silenced and were disappeared, and those who would tow the government line were given all the platforms they needed. And I'm not trying to make a political point, but obviously you can see how these things work and how easy it is to control people with these sorts of things. What has been done now, what will happen in the future, has happened in the past. This is why we, if we don't learn the lessons of history, we're all, all the more foolish for it. This has happened not just, that's one massive example. Cambodian Civil War, 1975 to 1979. The Khmer Rouge, again, communist ideology here, used starvation as a weapon to weaken their opposition. Of course, if you can't have troops eating, you're not going to be able to fight very well. That's the idea there. 500,000 alone start, died of starvation. 1979, Idi Amin, probably heard of him, Uganda. During the conflict with Tanzania, he did the same thing, controlling the food. 21% of the population died of famine. 1982 to 85, we saw the same thing in Mozambique. 1991 to 92, the Somalian civil war, exactly the same thing. Food is always affected in times of war. Somalia was still ranked as one of the hungriest countries in the world in 2021. 2003, we saw it in Darfur. Again, it was being used as a weapon. 2017, to the present day, this is exactly what's happening in southern Sudan right now. We read, scales, back to the black horse now, scales were used to weigh food. This is an indication that food is scarce. Famine here is indicated because it also says you'll be working the ancient units there of a court and a denarius. It's basically saying you'll be working for an entire day and you will barely earn enough to survive. You'll barely, you know, all of your day's wages will barely buy you a cup of wheat is what it's saying. Hyperinflation and all these things that we see. Again, we've got historical examples. But then I want to pick up on that last phrase and we'll move into our final points here. He says, do not damage the oil and the wine. The black horse came out, everything else is subject to famine, but don't touch the oil and the wine. This is a very unusual, interesting comment. These are luxury items. Wheat and barley, necessities. Food. Oil and wine are luxury items. And for me, this is telling you that this is not famine through the sense of the actual world is depleted of its resources. This is famine caused by governments. And remember, that's what, this is the point, because it came from the white horse to the red horse to the black horse. They're all connected to the white horse. So this is, these examples that I've given you in history, I believe, are what is pointing towards what will happen. Abject poverty lives side by side with abundant luxury, always under these regimes, which is, again, exactly what we see going on. There will be a wealthy elite, the ones who are taking the private property, whether it be a government or business or whatever it may be, and thus gives us a glimpse of what will happen, I believe, in the future. And again, many examples I could give you. Let's go through a couple of them. The Hamas billionaires, if you know the situation, Hamas uh, elected in Gaza. They have received probably more aid than any other people in the world. Most of them live in palaces. They are worth billions, the Hamas leaders, yet the people still live in poverty. And it's a political tool. We see that again. Before Hamas, we had Arafat, the Palestinian Authority, 
This man had so much money, they don't even know how to track it all, but billions upon billions, and he had no salary. This was all money that was given from Western nations, primarily giving it to the Palestinian cause that has pushed so much around the world. Most of this went into Arafat's pocket and various different things that he invested it in. Interestingly, he invested it most of it back into American companies, Coca-Cola and so on and so forth. This is the world that we live in. Vladimir Putin. Now, no one quite knows how rich Vladimir Putin is. Some people estimate 70 billion but some people say it's probably more likely up to 200 billion because being in charge of everything that he does, he will just, there's no way to, you know, they don't have to give their records and open up their life to everyone in those parts of the world. People just do not know basically how rich he is, but the power that comes with, with that. And what I'm, again, showing you is that whilst you can have people in abject poverty, like the Black Horse indicates, struggling to work for a day of food, there's always those people who have the wine, the oil, and the luxury items. And what is actually happening here, again, is part of this concept of government taking over, which will be a big theme throughout the book of Revelation. Now, we've seen this happen in our own Western world in the last few years. Particularly, again, please don't jump further than what I'm saying, I'm not trying to make political points, but with COVID, the government responses, what we have seen, and again, I'm not even speculating about the issues of the virus and, and all that sort of stuff, but I, I want you to look beyond that to what is happening that most people are not talking about, that has been happening in the background, and that is the collectivization of assets and wealth. Through these last two years, we have seen one of the biggest movements of wealth distribution ever to happen, really, on this earth, probably. And this has produced huge amounts of wealth in certain areas, let me introduce to you the 40 new billion COVID billionaires, they call them. These are now the richest people who control most of the world's assets. And of course, all of the CEOs of Pfizer and Moderna are now on this list. They've all become billionaires through this. If you go through the list in this Forbes article there, most of them are actually in China. And they are people selling medical equipment, masks, face masks. They are all multi, multi-billionaires now through this, the pharmaceutical companies, on and on. And again, I'm not looking, trying to make a point, but this is the reality of what has been happening. As the governments have been taking wealth, they've been printing more money to give out all this money to people to get them to survive. All that does is lessen your private property and give the money back to the government. And then working in league with government, you have these massive businesses who end up becoming billionaires. As the rest of the world gets poorer, as people are using those scales weighing for food, there are those who are buying the luxury and the wine. This is how it goes. This is exactly what the Bible is talking about. What we're seeing here in a, just a tiny way, remember while the restrainer is still here, imagine what will happen when evil is given its full opportunity to do what it does under this world leader who is coming. This is the sort of thing we're looking at here. Now, Hopefully you can see all these things start to fit together. There's a lot going on behind the scenes, and I know this has been a lot. I want to be very careful. I do not want people to develop an unhealthy interest. The internet urges us to do that in many ways. Be careful what you watch on the internet. Understand these things in the concept of the larger biblical narrative that we have from Genesis to Revelation, always putting the king, the prince of peace, at the centre of anything that you do and study. Now, let me end just a little bit by talking about fear, because one of the things that has allowed all of this to happen is fear. 
And that is really a way, fear is also a weapon of war, and it causes people to do very unusual things. Chapman University just released their annual survey on American fear. It's American context. I couldn't find a similar study in the UK, but I'd imagine there's quite a lot of things that apply equally across the culture there. The principles carry over. Fear is on the rise dramatically, which is not to be unexpected with all the rumours of wars, the pandemic, and all these different issues that we've had in the headlines. Constantly, fear is on the, the rise. But the interesting thing about this study was the number one thing that people fear was corrupt government officials. Okay, and then like 20 points lower than that was losing a loved one. So you can see what's been feeding the different media. And of course, these were rated slightly depending on which side of the political aisle you're on. But fear crosses all of those paths. Now in the UK, we've seen fear weaponized during the pandemic and much has been written about that. The use of nudge theory, as they call it. There's a whole department in the government that are using nudge theory. That's, how, that's the nickname for it. It is basically using behavioral psychology to manipulate people to behave in a certain way. And that is multi-million pound industry again in the government. And that's been going on. And because of this, we're seeing some new statistics now. Young people particularly always bearing the brunt of these issues, of these games in politics, fearful over the future. Many of them live with anxiety. Over 61%, I believe, have anxiety about the future due to issues like climate change, due to issues of fear, basically, of all the stuff that they're absorbing in their lives. Yet, all the time, God is shouting to this world, come to me, I have the solution. We've talked about peace a lot, Remember what Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. We've looked at how the world offers and thinks about peace. This is not what Jesus is talking about. He says, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, this is a great opportunity for the church to be different than the world to be that people set apart, to show that we live for a different kingdom, that we have different values, and ultimately we know our future is secure in the king of all kings. We can take a lesson from the early church in this, and as we close, the book of Acts records 13 incidents of political corruption, usually involving death and violence with members of the early church. Of those 13 examples of the early Christians, the examples of them responding with fear, panic, doom and gloom, hatred, anger, political paranoia is precisely zero. Of those 13 examples, the early Christians responding with boldness, publicly proclaiming the good news of Jesus, loving their neighbours, speaking the word of God, refusing to back down in the face of political, governmental prohibitions and death threats is precisely 13. Now why is this? Like we just said, they knew the one who had conquered death. And when you know that one, what can man do is ultimately how they, how they live their lives. They knew the sovereign Lord, they knew the King of Kings, they knew the Prince of Peace, they knew the Messiah, the one who made heaven and earth and the one who was moving history along to his desired fulfillment, ultimately culminating in that kingdom where peace will reign. People will hammer their swords into plowshares and never again will they learn war. So as we are seeing these things approaching, let us pray to the God of heaven like they did in the early church. When Peter and John were arrested and told to stop preaching the name of Jesus, they went back to the church. They didn't get them scared. They didn't act fearfully. They simply said, let's pray. And they said, Lord, grant that your bondservants may speak your word 
with all the more confidence. And I believe that is what the Lord would have us do today. Amen. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.